0: Hoi te Arapuoru, Sounds. E e rauranga tēnā koto katoa. You're listening to part one of Roger Fox, A Life in Jazz. For Sounds, Centre for New Zealand Music, toi te Arapuoru, ko Nick Tipping aho.
1: My father, basically, his main instrument was corner, because he had won the band Championship and done all that sort of thing, mm. and as. His... And it's his father, or my grandfather, had been a champion cornet player in England.
0: That's HCA and, uh,
1: Fox, H-C-A Fox. Yeah. yeah. And he was—I uh, only met him sort of twice in my life. He died when I was quite young. So, uh, but he was a very distinguished man. Had the wax mustache and oh, yeah. the whole thing, you know. <laughs> so, and he—he he was the bandmaster. He was yeah. that sort of personality. Then he came. He moved out here, and then my father ended up uh, taking over the, well. He played in the Hara Band, my father, and then my father was, uh, conducted. That was sort of like the 30s, mid-30s. Then um, he ended up being the conductor of the Third Division Band in the Second World War and then came back from there and went back to Hara and conduct, ended up conducting um, Hara. And they were the first sort of band outside of a major centre to win the eighth grade Championship. I think it was nineteen fifty two or mm-hmm. fifty three or something like that. And then I arrived. Then you yeah, arrived. Yes, yeah. I, yeah I, I, in, well, most of our family seemed to arrive in or around at the end of a, at, at a contest. <laughs>
0: what, what, <laughs> well, what nine months after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was after a like, successful campaign.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah well, It became a sort of a family joke. It, my, my parents finally <laughs> had time. <laughs> You're right. And yeah, so you know. So and I'm not. I'm not sort of saying anything out of turn here. It was like just a family <laughs> thing. It was like a, it was sort yeah, of a family joke.
0: Can you pin your particular birth to? Yeah. Any particular, well, I'm you not te- sure.
1: I don't know if he won, but he won something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we'll go that. Yeah, but your mum was a music teacher. Yeah, my mum well. yeah, was a really good piano player. Yeah, so she was uh, primary. She was from Christchurch. Uh, she'd studied there uh, for a long time. She had the sort of highest marks for sort of LTCL and great, great at piano for years. You know, but she was a fantastic accompanist. Uh, she, she worked uh, accompanists for a lot of the. Um, Brass band contest, a lot of people doing the major exams and stuff. But she was also a really good sort of dance band piano player. So you know, the sort of Bye Bye Blackbird type piano. So and and my so but my father played tr- uh, cornet and trumpet, and but it was also a really good violinist. <laughs> yeah. And when he died, we actually found things, you know, he had played it like the Royal Albert Hall as a child prodigy, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like at about 10 years old and all that. So we, we never really sort of knew. He never really played the violin that much after he came back after the war, seemed to just disappear, went out of his sort of sphere, really. Um, but fantastic conductor. And I th- and the other thing with him, uh, he just had a real knack of being able to motivate people to play and and um, learn learn an instrument, um, which I you know I, th- I think part of what I I do is, is really being sort of modelled of him Cause he just I mean he was demanding but it wasn't the big stick brigade which the brass band thing tended used to be you know he he tended to be a bit more encouraging he could crack the whip mind you but. Uh, but it was more that, more that sort of making it an environment so people wanted to be part of what he was doing so yes you know, and that's what sort of he had with the Marner college band and when he was conducting the local theatrical society and all that sort of thing that my parents were involved with over the years <laughs> Well, I actually started in Gore. So I mean, I was young. So I would have been nine, eight, something like that. Used to go to the local um, the, the convent. Our, our parents never taught us music, so we were always sent to other. Oh, really? Other teachers. Why do you think? Oh, was? I just think you know it was too close to home. I think you know. So it was. Yeah. We were sent off to other teachers. So uh, yeah, I went to uh, the local nun in um, Gore. Uh, for about three months, I lasted. Um, I uh, I actually per- perfected hiccups. So every time I got to the lesson, I was able to get the hiccups going just as I got the violin out of the case. And, w- and when the when the bow hit the string, it started. She'd have me out in the balcony trying to settle me down, hold your breath, you know, for ten seconds, all that type of thing, and then she'd send me home. So after about three months, my parents were summoned in this. Uh, Uh, Mum was telling my parents, uh, uh, we feel Roger probably doesn't want to play the violin, you know. (laughs) So I was moved on the cornet. Yeah. So I I basically played cornet, Um, yeah, from there. And then we moved to um, Porro, Marna College, when my father got the job at Marna College. And I I played uh, cornet for um, about another two years, I suppose, during last two years of um, primary school. Mm-hmm. And I only really took up I only ended up on trombone because I was going to Marna College and the year the, the Christmas holidays I we, before I went to Marna College, my father came home and I all I got was Can you bring the uh can you bring the cornet down to the uh, you know, so I'll bring it down to the kitchen and he takes the cornet off and gives me a trombone. Just like that? Yeah. <laughs> So I had the six weeks over the summer holiday to learn the trombone, because as it, lo and behold, I was going to be one of the only trombone players at the Marna oh. College band. Oh, right. So he just because a lot a of his sen- yeah, yeah, a lot of his senior players had left. Yeah, <laughs> so I, so that's the only reason I took I ended up on trombone, just uh, pure chance. Yeah, pure chance. And and I mean, the funny thing years later, well, as as things progressed, there was there was very few players playing anything other than classical or brass band trombone, you, know, you know, so I, I was one of a very few younger players who were dabbling and trying to play jazz or even in rock bands and stuff like that, so that, so it actually worked to my advantage, at the time I didn't see the no. the advantage, other than my whole six weeks summer holiday is now shot because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got to goddamn learn this friggin' instrument with no valves. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know no, yeah, either. I should have think, kept the trombone, yeah, yeah. yeah, or the violin, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, so then, yeah, there's no vowels, baby. You yeah, <laughs> know, right. <laughs> you you were on a kind of on a track to
0: be a classical player.
1: Yeah, well, there was there was no other track really back then. I mean, there was you know there wasn't really any professional big band or anything like that. Um, uh, so yeah, I went down the track of you know Wellington Youth Orchestra. New Zealand Youth Symphony Orchestra, did all my grades, you know, yep. everything, which everybody did back then. And then I, or back then, they had the symphony orchestra, which and it's it's a pity they cut it out, but a lot of it was cut out because of the government changes. But back then, I mean, a lot of the, my friends at Mana College um, uh, sort of went on and did trade. So they had three-year apprenticeships and plumbing and mechanics and, you know, all that type of thing. Uh, well, the Symphony Orchestra sort of picked up on that, and they started what they called uh, initially was called the orchestral trainees, and it was about a thirty-piece, thirty thirty-five people, sort of a mini orchestra really, and you were mentored by people in the orchestra, so that so you got a, basically a three-year apprenticeship, so you were paid an apprenticeship wage, and that was it. So they'd done, they'd had one intake of three years, and I applied and was accepted into basically what was the second intake. Mm. Yeah, so I – well, I found out sort of in November-ish that I'd been accepted. So I thought, that's it. I'm on the road. Yeah. Professional career, you know, (laughs) a three-year apprenticeship and blah, blah, blah. So um, – and then towards the end of January, another letter came out saying, due to the previous intake of all the brass and woodwind players – not being able to find any work, they've decided to cancel the next intake of brass and woodwind. So they only took strings. So my classical career was over. <laughs> before, it yeah, before it started. Yeah, before it started, yeah. So I'm sitting out at 8 MAN Road, Titae Bay, in the family home, thinking, oh, right, okay. And my parents were on holiday. They were in Rotorua. <laughs> and... uh and I picked up the uh, Evening Post, um, and there was an ad in there saying Brass Players Wanted, Quincy Conserve. That was it. And Quincy Conserve at that time was sort of the number one band in Wellington. And it had, you know, it already had a couple of big hits in New Zealand. So I just rang up. And Malcolm Heyman, who was the leader of the band, singer of the band, uh, basically the audition was, oh, well, uh, can you get in here? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, oh, I need, I don't drive. Oh, well, Okay. Uh, get, come in on the train, yeah, okay. So, the, yeah, and the, I mean, they played to two and three in the morning. So, the drummer who had the band van had to drive me home, you know, so, it was, so that, was the, that was the gig, you know. Yeah. So, I went in and played and uh, got the gig.
0: Nice. This is, you're about 19? Yeah, is. 19,
1: yeah. So, yeah. it's pretty much straight out of school. So that was the next phone call, the next day. (laughs) To the parents? Yeah, (laughs) my parents in Rotorua on a holiday. (laughs) Hey, uh, you know that... um there's the good news and there's the bad news. <laughs> it was one of those sort of phone calls. That you can almost hear them saying, shit, he's burnt the house down, you know. <laughs> so basically it was I just said what was happening and um, I got this kick with Quincy Conserve. <laughs> and uh, all my father said, well, all we, all we expect you to do it is the best you possibly can. Awesome. Uh, we'll be back in five days. Clack. That was, that was <laughs> the end of the... That was it. And that was it. So here I am, my classical career gone. Uh, I, the whole musical thing gone left field. Well, I had been listening to some music. I mean, um, uh, well, it wasn't right out of the blue... Uh, When I was on the Youth Symphony Orchestra, um, there was one of the trainees, a guy called John McMillan, he was was the trumpet trainee, and he got the first copy of the Chicago Transit Authority, which would have been 1968 or 69, when we were in camp Mm -hmm. with the thing. So it was basically, we were all huddled around the... Gramophone, checking this double album out with this band. Like, <laughs> so I got into that, a wee bit of blood, sweat, and tears. My father sort of had, uh, you know, the, some of the sort of more key big bands, you know, Ted Heath and, you know, uh, Benny Goodman and things like that. And he was right into Louis Armstrong. So he had Louis Armstrong, Holt Seven and those bands. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of listening to the music and I had been listening to the Chicago. So, and I was aware of Quincy's mm-hmm. because they're on the radio. Uh, yeah, And that was it. But it was just, it was like, well, I'm a brass player, and they want it.
0: Just reading through some of the history and stuff, it, it sounds like Malcolm Heyman
1: was quite an influential figure. Yeah, well, Malcolm Heyman was, was uh, uh, quite frankly, he's never been given his due. They, that guy had a, one of the best rock voices in New Zealand's ever had. But because the band was a bit too musical... You know, it was sort of like on that end, it wasn't sort of some of the other bands of the time, which were sort of more pop-type bands. I mean, some good bands. But but he had a fantastic voice, but he had a really good sense of how to run a band. And, I mean, when I joined that band, it was like Bruno Lawrence was the drummer. And he had some hard nuts on that band. And, like, Bruno used... And Malcolm had, like, a fine system. You're late, you're fined hadn't learned the material find. I mean Bruno made no money most of the time. He he was fined so much and in any given week. There was hardly any money being handed over. Here I am nineteen it's like, man, this is insane. The, all this guy has to do is turn up in time, you know, sort of thing, you know. Uh but he he really knew how to handle a band. I mean it was an eight piece band and and, you know, and it was playing a lot. I mean it was four nights a week. I mean and so Wednesday, Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, and then a long weekend, Sunday. So Wednesday, Thursday, we played to two. Friday, Saturday, we played to three. So we're talking six hours, nine to three. I mean, you know, chops are steel, man, I tell you. <laughs> you know, like, you know. But, and, but he just had a really good manner with how the – and he knew – and I learned a lot from him just how he dealt with bar managers and club owners and he just had a real knack of being able to – Keep it civil, and you know, but not lose control of what's going on. Mm. And he still had his own thing, and it was his own identity, and it was him, and it was his band.
0: When you um, missed out on the opportunity to join the orchestra mm. and that kind of mentorship system, it sounded like you actually exchanged one mentorship system for another.
1: Yeah, 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 and I'm, I'm glad. I I'm, well, I'm very grateful that, that happened, you know, with Malcolm, I mean, and the fact that I was sort of around him on that band for six years, I suppose. I was and some
0: other heavies, like like Bruno, you mentioned. But oh, yeah. Jeff Cover was there? Yeah, here. Jeff
1: Cover was there, and there was oh, Ruth right. Frehu, and there was Fritz Dichter, and all, all the guys were on those bands. I mean, because that, that, that was also the house band for EMI Records. So when I came in, that rhythm section from Quincy's... Was the house of rhythm section, so they played on every pop album, which came out. The drummer Richard Burgess, who was from Christchurch, he he went on to well, he went to Australia and then he went to Berklee School of Music, and um, but he he ended up getting going to London, and produced the Thompson Twins. And he was one of the very early guys who who was who programmed drums, so like electronic drums, so all that stuff on the Thompson twins. Richard Burgess was the brains behind all that. And then Richard Burgess, I don't think he's there now. He went back to the United States, but he was he got the job as the head archivalist for the Smithsonian. Oh, yeah. and he 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 was in charge of the popular music section, so he had the very first acetate of the very first popular record ever made in the United States and all that and he's actually written a couple of quite good books uh, i i you know he he was on the band only for a very short time and then he left so I, I you know i i can't say i'm a sort of a personal friend of his but i i you know I knew him through being on Quincy's. And I know what he's sort of done. And he's written a couple of quite good um, books on uh, the business and stuff like that. I got a house full of boxes.
0: Town to do so out of Quincy concert came the 1860 band.
1: Yeah, it was based
0: and yeah. based on that in the Barrelink. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. That was another good idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, how that one happened is uh, I was we were on Quincy's, and uh, Richard Holden, um, who was running the brewery circuit, uh, just had a chance meeting with a guy called Jack Cooper. Uh, Jack Cooper had taken over this bar in Lambton Key called the 1860. And Jack was – he was a pretty wild punter, actually. Yeah, it was great. But um, Richard had come back from Australia and said, the big thing is jazz on a Saturday afternoon, which it was. It was everywhere, like Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. It was like everywhere it was Saturday afternoon was jazz. Now, in Australia – it was mainly sort of more traditional. It was more Dixie sort of trad stuff. So I um, so I, I got this call from Richard Hold to say, hey, I'm going down to uh, re- meet this guy, Jack Cooper. Come on down because I'm, I'm suggesting, yeah, they need to start Saturday afternoon jazz. So I thought, oh, I'm sure that'll be good. Yeah, so I sort of wandered off down there.
0: What, why did he get you to come in particular? Uh,
1: well, well, Richard Hold knew me through Quincy's yep. and i just started the big band and oh, okay. all that yeah, type yeah. of thing. So, yeah, so... It was all, yeah. You know, I mean, it was an intertwine, yeah. yeah so I went, I went down, met, met Jack Hooper. I was still with Quincy's. so I went back and spoke to Malcolm, and I said, well, you know, you know, you know, I've got an interest in jazz, and especially the fusion thing, which is happening, you know, the Brecker Brothers and all that sort of stuff, which was starting, and you know, we were doing some of that stuff with Quincy's. but you know, we were pretty much a sort of more of a a horn band that played dance music, you know, for a club, you know, or a bar. So Malcolm just sort of said, well, it's Saturday afternoon as long as you get the gig. you know." At that time, we weren't touring as much. Most of the stuff was more in Wellington. So so we used to play 2.30 to 5 at 1860 and then get to wherever Quincy's were playing. And that lasted probably about a year and a half. Um, and by that time, Malcolm uh, Malcolm wasn't that well and he had bad diabetes and stuff. And um, he decided to sort of pull the plug in Quincy's. And I just happened to mention that to to Jack Cooper, And he said, oh, well, Friday uh, Saturday and Saturday's going really well at the bar. We don't need a band. But well, why don't we do the same as what you're doing on Saturday afternoon, but we'll do it Monday to Thursday. <laughs> so it's the only gig I've ever had where I've played in a bar Monday to Thursday and have Friday and Saturday night off. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, it's like laughs> opposite of a yeah, regular like, you know, like, and getting paid. To play this music, so we were playing George Benson and Al Jarreau and Steely Dan and Jazz Crusaders and all that shit. Yeah, how I mean,
0: do people like
1: it? They dug it because the good thing about it is all all that shit was on the radio. I mean, your Chuck Mangione feels so good and all that stuff. Mm. Averis White Band pick out the pieces. We're on the top twenty. I mean, it was actually that music. So you know, breezing George Benson on the radio. Yep. So really. Right place, right time again. In the sense that the music we sort of were digging was actually the top twenty music. Mm -hmm. So we were just doing, we were just playing all the shit we liked to the punters who were hearing it on radio, and they dug it. So happened um, to be jazz, yeah, it just happened to be jazz, and we were able to stretch out on certain things, and and then we kept the Saturday afternoon one going, and that sort of became sort of quite the sort of hang place for a lot of musicians. I mean, different players would just drop in, like we know them. And you know, they'd get up and jam, and you know, and we'd sort of take it out more on the after- Saturday afternoon one. <laughs> so we're doing Billy Cobham and sort of long solos and all that shit, you know. Like, you yeah. know uh, and then tighten it up for the Monday, the Thursday, and sort of do uh, sort of more the El Jero, George Benson stuff.
2: For
0: kind of love I got for you. So while you were in Quincy Conserve, mm. this is 73, you formed a band called The Golden Horn. Yeah. So this was your first big band? Big band.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was sort of late 72, early 73.
0: I get the sense that it kind of fulfilled a bit of an ambition because you'd there's a story about you checking out a Woody Herman
1: record. Oh yeah, well I'd bought a Woody Herman record. There was a place called Lamp House in Manor Street. And and it's just what it sounds like. It was a lamp house. It sold lamps, you know. <laughs> it was a shop that sold lamps, yeah. You know? But down the back of it it was one of the main record shops. Of course. Yeah. So of course, you know. <laughs> You know, you sell lamps in the front and you sell records at the back. Quite logical. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, quite logical, you know. But, <laughs> so I went in there and um, I was just flicking through the bins and there was a record there which had a whole lot of trumpets and saxophones and trombones. Now, I sort of knew the Woody Herman name, but I didn't really know much about it, really. And I bought it. And I took it home and threw it on the stereo at, at Tete Bay, uh, 80 Main Road, Tete Bay, and uh <laughs> It was like all hell broke loose, and it was like the Woody Herman nineteen sixty three live album, which was sort of like a, which I find out was a benchmark album for a lot of the players on the band, and it's really the band I modelled my own band onto the stage. I mean, it was that energy and the whole thing of what they had.
0: Still remember the
1: oh, putting it on the first Well, time. it was just—it was like sheer panic, really. <laughs> <laughs> I was not yeah, expecting that word. Yeah, well, well, in the fact that I just hadn't believed. I, well, you know, I'd been listening to like Ted Heath and you know some Allington and stuff my father had, but this was just another level of playing. I mean, everything is about four times faster, <laughs> louder, higher. You know. It's everything my band sounds like, really. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's that sort of thing, you know. But it was just like, man, I can't believe it, you know. And it was like – and they had a trombone player, a guy called Phil Wilson, who was like just a ridiculous frigging trombone player. You know, he he ended up teaching at Berkeley. But it was like – yeah, so that was sort of like that. And then the reason I really started the band was, um, you know, there were some bands in town. And it was the day of the radio program. So, you know, there'd be one radio program a week of a local big band, you know, playing for Radio New Zealand. And it was like a 13-week season. So, you know, the big band would get a contract for, mm. you know, 13 weeks and the Roger Fox big band or whatever it was. But what it was was the same group of punters. It right. was the same group of 17 people. And all they did was say, it was like... Okay, you're the leader this week for 13 weeks, and they'd arrive, and then they'd finish that series, and then the next bunter down the road become his band, same group of people. And it was like, well, hang on, what about You know, so when are we going to be able to get the play? You know? Yeah. So it was like, and it was just, yeah, you know, we were younger, you know, I was only, you know, early 20s, you know. So there's there's a whole crowd of people in Wellington who couldn't get the gig. Yeah, couldn't get the gig. and in the end I thought, oh, I'll stuff this. I mean I was I'm going to form my own band. You know so I went I went out the uh, home and my father helped helped me get we, we imported the – well we had well, I used to buy the downbeat, so you used to have the buy. It here. and um, so we went in we found some charts and we got them in and I, I managed to uh, r- ride out a couple, well, I thought I had. I actually found I actually found one of my first transcriptions a few a couple, about a year ago, and I looked at it, I thought this has got no relationship to that chart at all. But we used to play it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <yeah, it's> <laughs> there's you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm on my way, yeah. you know, like, you know, yeah. So I, I was working at, at a place called Golden Horn uh, Shop. Uh, well, it was actually Whole Brown Limited. Whole Brown, um, the old man, Whole Brown was an instrument repairer. He, he was one of the only two instrument repairers in New Zealand. So basically, you know, they did every brass band instrument. Like this guy could take a a tuba which was sort of crushed by a car, and he could <laughs> fix it. He can make he can make a valve for an instrument. You know, he was a craftsman. You know, and. Uh, I mean, I was working in there there part time um, in Holbrown, Brown, who own who then owned the shop, drummer. It was like, well, I'll sponsor it. you know, I'll, I'll buy you music stands and let, I'll buy a couple of charts and then you know, blah 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 blah. Yep. On yes. your way, and it was sort of like, well, uh, you know, I think it was mainly because of my age. It was like, ah, uh, well. You know, I didn't sort of feel comfortable putting my own name on it to that stage. So it just became the Golden Horn Big Band. It could have become bloody anything, really. But it <laughs> was uh, it, it just the fact that he, he had, you know, he had paid for a few music stands and that. And, yep. well, let's call it the Golden Horn Big Band. Let's go. It was like the 1860 band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that could have been the Roger Fox something or other. <laughs> but we end up playing in this bar. And then it was like, what do you guys call? Oh, yeah. um, Quick think of a name. The 1860 band, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it... we we're playing all this fusion music, and the band's called the 1860 <laughs> band, you know, like, like real, lo- yeah, really, really well thought out, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, so the Golden Horn Band was the starting point, and we started rehearsing at the Wellington Musicians Club, which was in Wigan Street, which is the building right next door where Havana is, if you know, right. you know, anybody knows where Havana is. In Wigan Street. And um, so we basically would do uh, Sunday late afternoon there and uh, for a couple of hours. And awesome. I, I'd try and stay one week ahead of the band and with, with knowing <laughs> yeah. the charts. Yeah. And that was it, you yeah, know. And that was it. And then a few things happened. I, I went back out on the road with Quincy's. Uh, we started touring more. I didn't work at the Golden Horn. And then I forget who it was. Somebody just came along and said, well, well let's just call it your band. You started it. So yeah. it sort of became the Roger Fox Big Band and we sort of morphed into that. On oh.
2: oh, a natural gambler, I can't recall a can of swear. Ray Redun ruin poker. Jack, hand dealer, man, you gotta pay.
0: taking the band overseas, Sydney, 1978,
1: Sydney. and then yeah, that was pretty, yeah, well, I, I've always had a view that you got to have some sort of goal, you know, and I'm the worst person to get to a rehearsal. I mean, I'd, you know, I don't mind going to a rehearsal, but just to rehearse for no reason, to me, didn't make sense. I mean, the rehearsal band concept, to me, is like, why? <laughs> I'd sooner go to dinner, you know? <laughs> We'd started, we'd played ta- we'd played Banama Two Jazz Festival, we'd gone to Tower Honor, a few things, we'd done our first couple of records, you know. And then Terrence O'Neill Joyce, who owned Ode Records, who was putting the records out, he had the Vanguard label of you know, recordings. And um, the guy in Australia oh, I can't oh, I can't think of his name, um, he but he owned the basement club anyhow in Sydney, which was the famous club. And the guys sort of said, oh, well, you know, if they want to come over, we'll give them a couple of nights at the basement. So that, it was sort of one of those, you know. And then th- and then Mike Booth, who had been on the band but was now in Sydney with Collision, the funk band with Delvanious, uh they set up a couple of gigs in clubs they were playing at. And the Musicians Club in Sydney had a big performance space, so we played there. So, well, you know, we just raised a bit of money, got on the plane and buggered off to Sydney, and that was it. What was the reception like? Good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because really we were doing like what, uh, there was a a band over there called Daily Wilson Big Band, and Daily Wilson Big Band was sort of a modern sort of sounding big band. You know, they were doing sort of like Maynard Ferguson type charts and sort of rock charts, which is pretty much what I was doing. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a new thing, but it was actually good that it was being done. We were playing that because the, the, the Sydney crowd sort of understood it. And like we were playing at, uh, oh, I, forget, I forget the name of it, it was, but we had a lot of the rock bands played in Coogee over the, you know. So we arrived in and just sort of pound out the theme from Shaft and 2001 Space Odyssey and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, Dave Finn was singing the Blood, Sweat and Tears songs and all that type of thing. Um yeah we were playing in sort of non-jazz venues, really, till we played the bass.
0: yeah, but playing, playing still that stuff that was on the radio. yeah, yeah, people yeah. knew. yeah. And then you went to Montreux.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, that's another one of sort of, oh, if they can get here, we'll let them play. Uh, through Terence and a guy called Alan Nelson, who had sort of helped start the band in the early days. Uh, Alan was um, uh, within New Zealand. He was on the um, promotion side of New Zealand. And in his own admission, sort of not that good second alto player. <laughs> Loved the music, though. Yeah, so he he played second second alto, and uh, but he he did all the ringing round and stuff like yeah, that yeah. And, and and yeah, all that stuff in the early days. So well, him and Terence used to go to Montreux Jazz Festival every year, and they they'd been going for a couple of years before then, so it was seventy seven, seventy eight, and they uh, just happened to bump into Claude Nobs, who uh, who ran that festival. And was telling him about this band in New Zealand and Terence was recording it and blah, blah, blah. And Claude Nobbs basically said, so, so, well, if they get here, they can play. <laughs> it was like, you know, if any band can get from New Zealand in 1980 to Switzerland to play at the Montreux Jazz Festival, they're on. <laughs> so he, he came back and told me that. or they came back and told me that. And I, I sort of thought about it. I said, well, sure, why not? You know. <laughs> it's like having that goal again. Eh? Yeah, yeah. And I just took to the band and... Uh, Eighteen months, two years later, we're we're on the plane, and we. How did you raise the money? Oh well, pretty much playing. I I got lucky uh, that the government was a wee bit more supportive back then. There was a guy called Alan Hyatt who was the minister of uh, the arts, and he was he was a lot more supportive. Well, he was supportive, so uh, they chipped in about twenty thousand, twenty twenty five thousand, and then Ashley Heenan, who was the head of uh, APRA at the time. He's the guy who he, kicked yeah, you out yeah, of the, the orchestra. Yeah, he's the guy who kicked me out of the New Zealand Youth Symphony Orchestra <laughs> uh, several times. And <laughs> still, yeah. I just bumped into him um, in Manor Street one day. And uh, that had been probably 79 or very early 80. And uh, he just stopped and talked to me. It was like, that was the guy that sort of arseholed me out of the orchestra in front of a hundred people. You know, <laughs> sort, of, sort of thing, you know. And I uh, think, well, OK, well, you know, be courteous and stand there and talk to him. And he seemed to know more about what I'd done than I could remember what I'd done myself, <laughs> you know. And he he sort of – it like he'd tracked my whole career at that stage. And he said, well, I'd really like to help you. We can't just give funding from APRA, but we can fund if you're going to play some New Zealand compositions. And, of course, I just said, oh, yes, of course. Of course we are. Of course we can. (laughs) So I I got to a band rehearsal, and we we were sort of looking at playing some original compositions on that particular tour. So I just got the guys who were writing, like Jeff Covewell and Peter Blake and um, Martin Winch and Rob Winch, and sort of said, well, you know, what we need to do is try and come up with about 15, 20 minutes. So we came up with this big 20-minute suite called the Montreux Suite, which was actually four movements and we got 10 grand out of EVEPRA.
0: Those were the first of many tours, mm-hmm. big band tours that you've done all over the country to Monterey, Monterey uh, California, New York, Las Vegas. You and I went to Capitol yeah. in 2012. Other than having a goal to work towards, what's the benefit of doing that? Because it's something you've just always done. Um, like What's the benefit to the band members?
1: Oh, I just think, I mean, the, within the band, even from the early age uh, of their band, um there's always been a lot of players on the band i have been teaching to some degree, you know. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you do out here, you know, like, it, there's nothing like being thrust into the fray of being overseas and sort of have to play in front of an audience and you sort of look down there and there's, you know, you know Dave Brubeck sitting in the front row, you know, type of thing. Or... At, you know, you're hearing other people's play and you, or you can go to their workshops and all that sort of thing. Now, we don't get the luxury of that all the time in New Zealand. Well, we didn't back then. Mm. And, I mean, it's got better with all the players I've brought out over the years. But uh, but there's nothing like going to where the source is. And I think it's just the whole whole thing of being there, being part of it, you know, being part of one of those big festivals. And, and my sort of hope all the time is that, you know, I could bring back, some of that knowledge and impart it on the others, that the band members bring it back, and when they're out teaching, they're imparting that knowledge on the students coming through, and it's just one big sort of mounting yeah. pot of stuff. I mean, one of those ones, the first one I went on, Michael Brecker came to the concert. That's <laughs> when I first met him. I still remember that, the poor saxophone player in the band. It was like one of this, we were in Chicago at the, the Jazz Educators Convention. And it was like a big convention hall, like in a, in a hotel, and it was pitch dark, and it was one of those sort of, you'd come in and there was like a foyer area, and then there's the door into the conference room, you know, and some of the guys had met Michael Brecker downstairs on the booth where he was sort of displaying instruments, and mouthpieces and stuff. and. And they'd heard he had overheard them talking, and then it was like, "Oh, New Zealand, all right, all right, no, when are So you know, nobody thought he had arrived, You know, and I still remember poor Dave Edmondson, the saxophone player, who's doing a really good job in Auckland now, teaching at several schools, and he's got really good big bands happening. You know, he literally had only just stood up out of the seat <laughs> to play the tenor saxophone solo, and. Over on the side of the conference room, the door opened. It was like God had arrived. And all you could see silhouetted in this door opening was Michael Brecker. Now, to his credit, he actually he'd still held it together and played a pretty good solo. But it was like one of those moments you're thinking, oh, you know, man, you know. Yes, but that's when I first met him. And
0: then, you know. So Michael Brecker is just one of a huge number of really big name artists that you've brought back to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. How did you get started doing that?
1: Uh, well, really, it was a, really just a progression of that sort of having something to aim for, really. You know, like I'd, you know, I'd done the Tauranga and two jazz festivals, and then I took the band to Sydney, and then it was like, what do we do next? Well, in Auckland at the time, there was the Auckland Jazz Festival was being run, and it was underpinned by a guy called Cliff Trillos, who had a big um, cabaret place in Auckland, and he was a jazz fan. So they'd brought out a few people like Don Menzer, Chuck Finley, um, Carl Fontana, Bobby Shu and a lot of us had gone up for these concerts. And I'd met Bobby Shue, and he was just keen. And I sent him a, I gave him a cassette of sort of what I've been doing, you know. And he was keen. He was uh, so I just got a hold of him and just sort of said, well, you know, what do you, what do you need? So he, all of a sudden this big packet of music arrived, and I tried to learn it, and you know. And that was really what started. And then through Bobby, who was, you know, he was a trumpet player with Buddy Rich and Woody Herman, big band. He was one of the main studio guys. So this is late 70s, early 80s. And he, through his network of people, he just started recommending people. So all of a sudden it was Don Rader came down and then Gordon Brisker came down. And it was sort of like, you know, a few of those. And those people knew people and they recommended me, and then it was like, you know, I, I met Bill Reichenbach, and it was like, you know, so it was really recommendation on recommendation. So they would have had to have a good time here. I, yeah, I well, I think New Zealand, just because of the nature of New Zealand, uh, it's pretty laid back compared to living in New York or L.A., and especially if you were a studio musician. And I think we've got a reasonably good handle on how to look after people, so, I mean, as as people, and and I'm always up for a, a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them have come back quite a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it just got a whole thing rolling. I mean, Bobby Shue, must—I must have had him back here uh, three, four, five times, different ones. Uh recorded the, uh, an album with them, you know, a heavy company album and different things. So, and it really just went on from there, and it, and then it sort of really became another thing for the band to have a goal. Now, we can't always go overseas because of the financial thing. The financial thing just got harder and harder and harder. Um, not that it's really stopped the band, but it, it, was, it stopped the band. We couldn't do it all the time. It had to, it had to have a bit of space for team time. Uh, so it was just easy to bring people in. So all of a sudden, you know, the band would have to start learning material. Well, you were on the band when we had uh, Mike Stern and Joey. Francisco, you know, all of a sudden those charts arrived and it was like brain damage, you know, yeah. like, how are we going to play this? Yeah. You know, so everybody sort of knuckled down and yeah, yeah. got that's, the shit happening, you know. Right. It's, it's,
0: that's and the goal.
1: Yeah, and that's it. And then, and then you have the sort of old thing of those players arriving and being part of the rehearsal and they're being on the road and, 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 you know, there's always at least four or five concerts type of thing. I mean, the one with Michael Brecker, we did done eight concerts with him, so. Yeah, and then
0: you've, yeah, yeah. like you were sort of Insinuating, you've got the big artist hanging out with yeah. the the band yeah. here in New Zealand,
1: yeah, and that's it. And, and I mean, most of them are really just regular people, really. I mean, they play, you know, at a whole different level than most of us will ever achieve in our lives. Uh, but when it comes down to it, they really, they're really just the same. I still remember Michael Brecker arriving, he'd he'd flown from Barcelona or somewhere, he'd gone Barcelona, New York, flown to New Zealand, got off, came to the rehearsal and then he was moaning that he hadn't played for three days. (laughs) Well, to this day I wish I had a tape of that rehearsal because (laughs) if that was him having a bad day after having three days off. I I will take that any day. (laughs) 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 Any day, because man, it was phenomenal. And he's sort of moaning about the reed and it was all that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, Actually, on that Wellington concert, uh, yeah, that was the fourth concert. We'd been out the road, we'd already done three concerts. And he he came to me at the sound check. And it was like, oh, do you think I can have a, a, a quick word with you? Oh, God, okay. Well, what's happening? Well, so, you know, your brain sort of goes to, you know, crisis mode. Yeah, yeah, crisis mode. You know, I'm standing there and I've got a full house at the St. James, and it's like, oh, you know, right. And he said, oh, no, no. I, I, can I just say a couple of words to the band? He said, I, you know, I've been here four days and nobody's really talked to me. <laughs> and I said, Course not, you're Michael Brecker. They can't believe you're here. I can't believe you're here, and you're on the same stage playing. You know it's the whole thing. So at the end of the sound check, he um, just said a few words to the band. You know, blah blah blah, enjoying it. You know, And, you know, you know. I come down and you know I just come to the sound check, and he just stays there and practices right through to when he played on the night at night. And you yeah, know, if you want to hang out, just come to the dressing room, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you buggered off to the dressing room. I finished my rehearsal, sound check with Diane Shore, who was one of the other artists on that tour, on that concert. And uh so I'm 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 coming out the dressing rooms of the of the St James, come past his dressing room the whole saxophone sections <laughs> in his dressing room and I saw a knock on the door and I said Yes, you'd be wishing you didn't say a thing now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it was yeah. hilarious. Yeah, and I mean, he he toured on the bus. You know, I I had a a friend of mine had a Jaguar dealership in Auckland, and um, he he'd come out as a ro- as a driving, and he had the br- latest brand new Jag, and to drive Michael Breck around. So, on, in Auckland. The coach we're using was there, and Michael Breckin comes down. And I say, "Oh, you? Goes, oh no, I want to go. On the, I'm going to go with the band." So it was like just at the moment, Diane Shaw came out of the left with her minder because you know she's blind, and I said, "Oh, I've got a specially um, <laughs> led, o- led her over to the Jag." My friend was going. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he he was looking forward to, uh, you yeah, know, week uh, yeah, Michael yeah, driving uh, Michael Brecker around, but he ended up with Don Shore and her minder. You know, well, that's not bad. No, not no, bad. it was great. It was yeah. good. Yeah, no, he dug it. Yeah, but it was. Hilarious. But Michael Brecker just got on the bus, and that's where he stayed. And then every night he'd go back, and he would um, he'd go around filming, and then he'd write some music underneath it and put captions and stuff, and, he, and he'd email it off to his kids uh, his wife, and... Uh, in the States. So he got into playing those videos on the on the bus, and <laughs> you know, it was hilarious. You know, So it's just, yeah. You know, it's amazing. Fantastic. You'd
0: never get that experience oh. any other way.
1: Well, you know, I had, like, Bill Cunliffe on that and tour him, John Papenbrook, and they still talk about it because that would never happen in the United States hmm. when he, he would be touring with his own band, and you'd be lucky to get near him. Here he is in New Zealand. Mike Young, who's one of the trombone players on the band, followed them around in Napier, and I've got the video. I've got the actually got the video, and so here's Michael Brecker wandering around Napier, <laughs> filming Napier, and about forty feet back is Mike <laughs> Young filming Michael Brecker filming <laughs> Nate. <laughs> it was a, I mean, he's classic shit, man. Yeah, I was yeah. like, you know. And then we told him about it. He, he just, he he couldn't believe it. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd heard, you know. He, it was just, nobody knew him here, hmm. you know. Yeah. Like in the States, if you if he was doing a concert, there'd be every bastard going to the concert it would be after him. And here, he could just wander around. Half the yeah, time, nobody knew him. Yep. And then he was just disappeared into the into the mist yeah. of the city, you know.
0: I remember seeing him with mm. with Paul Dine and Roger Sellers. Mm. Uh, oh, a at a the uh, workshop, yeah. Yeah, And like, I think it was the only time I've ever seen Roger Sellers really stretch. Yeah, like have to stretch to keep up with what was going on.
1: Oh well, no, even the guys in Auckland, Frank Gibson and those guys, though yeah. they were they were really put through the ringer up there. <laughs> Phil and uh, Alberta yeah. and those, and <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he because the thing with those players is there's there's no half measures. And that's the one good thing about I find with having those players here. And it's something I try and, you know, still, you know, when I'm teaching at the school is like, you know, th- this could be the last time you play this instrument, you know. you got to mm-hmm. treat it like this could be the last time you ever play. And there it is,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And that's how he sort of attacked the saxophone. I was like, it was like, God. <laughs> yeah. And when he hit the stage, it was like all hell broke loose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if the band couldn't rise to the occasion with somebody like him, Oh, it was the same with like with Mike Stern and Joey. I mean, it was like just like force <laughs> of nature yeah. kind of thing, eh? Yeah, it was just that's it. And and you can't you you can't learn that out of a book or you can't even yeah. learn that by going to a school. You gotta experience that or at a school hopefully you can instill it in students to be able to actually have that sense of purpose. Like every yeah. time they play, you yeah, you gotta make it like this could be the last time you play. Yeah. You know, or you've just got an invite to play at the Blue Note Club. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you know, you may be in the rehearsal room at the university yeah. or somewhere or, you know, uh, Rogue and Vagabond. But you've got to commit to it, you know, and play, you know. Yeah. So, And that's what those people bring in. I mean, that's the thing I dig about all those players. So there's just no – it's like when I had Steve Gadd arrive – it was like, man, that guy just played nothing. And it was like, he played more play nothing than anybody I know. <laughs> yeah. And there's still, you know, I talk about it with Nita Swaver. like, she said it was a most terrifying moment at one of the concerts. He looked straight across the ride cymbal at her, and he'd come out of this big shout chorus, and he just went down to dang, dang, dang. That's all he did on the ride cymbal. And she was trying to blow, and he hadn't done anything yet. And he was just looking straight at her like, yeah. Your turn, yeah oh. <laughs> you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden he starts to, as she as he started the place and shit, he started the place more, and by the time they finished, it was like rage, it was like yeah. un- insane, you know, yeah, yeah. it was just insane it was you, like you can't replicate that oh yeah. no. No, no, not a hope <laughs>
0: I think one of my, I've told a few people now, one of my peak musical experiences was about the fourth concert when we played with Joey D. Yeah. And I had a solo in the first number each time. Mm. And after I played a solo on that gig, he turned around and he goes, Yeah, Nick. Yeah. And it's like this is this guy who I've grown up listening to. Right, me. yeah. And I, it's like my ghost. He knows music your name. He knows my <laughs> name. And he thought I did an
1: okay solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. yeah, and that's, you know, I'll never forget that. No, 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 that's all, that's all yeah. part of it. And, and really, I mean, I think that's, I mean, all all that put into one big thing is sort of the reason. Yeah. I sort of keep doing what I'm doing and bring the bring, keep bringing these people out and if there is the chance to take, keep taking the band overseas, I'll do it, you know, so...
0: What, do you get anything in particular out of it personally from bringing these guys out? I guess you, you mentioned the hang.
1: Yeah, well... I got some good friends out of it. You know, I actually had a Skype or Zoom hang on uh, Monday, in fact, with some of the guys in L.A., Bill Cunliffe and Bill Reichenberg and a few of those guys. Yeah, it's just hanging out, you know. And, I mean, there's some of the great players mm. from uh, around, you know. Um, well, I, I get it. I, you know, I... I yeah, sometimes yeah. Sometimes I'm not, I'm not sure. Especially when I look at the uh, accounts at the end of the tour. But uh, no, but uh, yeah, I Well, I, I don't think there's any artist I haven't got something out of. I mean, I mean, just to have the band playing at the level it does when you have those people here is is a real buzz for me. And and just to see what the individual players on the band are getting out of it too, for me. Is a big thing because I I can see that's how it's all going to sort of hopefully keep going you know as well you know, you know hopefully people on the band sort of get encouraged by being part of it they see what they can get out of it and they'll keep sort of doing it have,
0: have that kind of moment that you had listening to yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah the whole thing yeah you know, that's that's the thing but as I say I've got some very dear friends out of it and you know um, I mean you can't uh, you can't pay for that.
0: This podcast was presented by Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuoru, presented by me, Nick Tipping, with Phil Brownlee on the sound. Don't forget to check out part two of the podcast for more insight from the life of Roger Fox. To learn more about Roger and for more information, go to the Sounds podcast website, sounds.org.nz. Nō Tenakoto tēnā koutou, tēnā katoa.
2: Toyttear sounds.